Hello, fellow planeswalker, and welcome to Into the Ether Vortex. My name's Ninja Boy, your guide into all the different ways you can enjoy Magic the Gathering and how they all come together in something wild, wacky, and a little bit magical. So we're kind of in the doldrums between formats, the dog days of summer. Uh, I'm still grinding away at standard using the Against the Odds blue-red prowess deck, though recently he posted a blue-red tutelids mill deck, which I might be trying out. Um, still having some trouble uh, doing well at the M21 limited format. Uh, might just wait until Zendikar Rising to get back in the draft. And I don't really have any plans to draft uh, Double Masters limited anytime soon, uh, just because of this little thing known as a global pandemic going on. I do still have Jumpstart on Magic Arena that's going away this weekend, so I think I'll try to grind for the basic lands I don't have yet. Um, it's also been several months since I've been able to play EDH. Um, however, that doesn't mean I can't look at you know my decks and do some deck techs and figure out what improvements I want to make. While I do have a self-imposed ban on getting new cards, since I don't want to deal with the nonsense going on around the USPS right now and potentially losing cards in the mail, and I also don't feel like buying cards until I've opened up the three boxes that I bought from my LGS to support them in this time. Uh, you know, I'm still, you know, I still definitely uh, have ideas for decks that I want to do. So, you know, I want to take a look this week at one of my more powerful EDH decks. Uh, last time I did this, I did my first ever EDH deck, uh, Omnath Hydras. Uh, this time we'll go to a different color combination, Yuriko Ninjas. So, Yuriko, the Tiger Shadow, premiered in the 2018 Commander Precons. She costs one blue and a black for a legendary creature, the uh, Human Ninja. Her most interesting ability is her Commander Ninjutsu ability, which lets you put her onto the battlefield tapped and attacking if you play blue and black to and return an unblocked attacker to your hand. This most notably gets around Commander attacks, since even if she's killed and sent back to the Command Zone, uh, the Commander Ninjutsu is a uh, ability, not a casting cost, and therefore, since he's not being cast, no additional tax. Uh, you know, her other ability is that whenever a ninja I control, including herself, deals combat damage to a player, I reveal the top card of my library and place it into my hand while also causing all my opponents to lose life equal to the re revealed card's converted mana cost. She's definitely one of the most popular commanders out there, being the fifth most popular commander over the last two years. And, you know, frankly, my, my nickname is Ninja Boy. After all, I couldn't not build Yuriko. And I suspect there's a good number of weebs out there who, who kind of felt the same way. Uh... I chose to go her primarily with Ninja Tribal. Um, you know, again, I tend to build a lot of decks that are, you know, very tribal focused. Try to include as many, if not all, of a particular tribe. Um, beyond go strictly just doing Ninja Tribal, though, Yuriko presents, in my opinion, a pretty interesting deck building challenge to the point where I actually, you know, don't 100% lean in on flavor on this one. So obviously, Yuriko wants low CMC creatures with evasion, preferably a one drop on turn one, so that by turn two, you're able to get Yuriko in and start, you know, chipping in with that second ability, uh, getting huge swaths of damage from your opponent's life. Uh, however, that second part also requires you have some percentage of high CMC cards to to make the most of that second ability. So you have to find the right ratio of high CMC cards uh, to you know burn your opponent with, and then low CMC evasive creatures that you can actually get her and other ninjas out reliably with. Um, the other part with ninjas is that not a lot of them have some form of evasion. So you know you can maybe get them in once with an ninjutsu ability, but if your opponent, you know, or your opponents end up developing a board, uh, Yuriko's ability starts not being as relevant, uh, and then you have to find a way to get them through. Uh, or maybe Maybe you end up just leaning in on your invasive creatures pinging in for one or two damage at a time, which isn't very efficient. So, you know, I also have my own limitations as well. Uh, com you know, as I said, mentioned before, compared to other decks, this is, I'm a little bit more lax on flavor in worlds, but I still aim to maximize the ninja flavor. So all ninjas in her colors I fit in and add in a couple of cards that, you know, fit into the ninja theme. I think the only one really that mentions ninja in the text I didn't include was Shuriken, just because as an equipment, it, you know, deals two damage if you tap the ninja, not particularly what I'm looking to do. Uh, I, as usual, I also limit myself to cards only in the modern frame for aesthetic reasons. Um, I actually 
broke one of my normal rules, which is, you know, 36 lands only. Um, I actually would go down to 34 lands here, uh, partly because of the curve considerations. It's a pretty low curve uh, that I'm expecting to cast cards, of, of the cards I'm expecting to cast. Um, you know, a lot of Euro decks also that I've noticed on EDH rack include some form of top deck manipulation, the most common being, you know, scroll rack or Sensei's Divining Top. Um, I do have some cards that, you know, let me scry, um, and some that even let me scry repeatedly, but in general, I like playing her almost as like a slots machine, right? Uh, where the thrill of not knowing whether I've got the game in the bag based on what's on top of my deck is part of the appeal. Uh, in that sense, you know, this kind of fits along with the way I play standard and modern with modern burn uh, or standard cycling, uh, where, you know, I'm hoping to live just long enough to finish off my opponents before they can stabilize. Uh, you know, in my experience playing this deck, Yuriko definitely paints a target early on my back. Um, it's a ridiculously easy to get off to a fast start, and once you start taking off, you know, damage for the entire board, not just one player, uh, you start, you know, you basically don't have any allies at the table, and you have to finish things quickly uh, before they all beat down on you, and you get overwhelmed. Um, it also doesn't help hurt that, you know, uh, or I guess it, it hurts you potentially that, you know, EDH tends to be a game where most people early turns are getting down mana rocks or other forms of acceleration. You're just trying to get down to one drop and start, you know, drawing aggression, basically. So anyway, let's go on to the build. I'll first talk about cards I consider the core of the deck and the way I build things. And then there are some flex shots, uh, which can be adjusted based on the flavor of, you know, the way you want to take the deck in a slightly different direction. Though, with that still central game plan of unblockable creatures, ninjas, and then high-cost CMC cards. Um, as usual, the deck will be linked in the show notes. So, uh, aside including Yuriko, there are 19 ninjas in the game, meaning that there are 18 others uh, that have type line of ninja in Black Border on their type line. Uh, this doesn't include Chains Links, which, you know, there are a couple in the deck. All but two have the ninjutsu ability, which lets you place them on the battlefield, usually for cheaper than their main converted mana cost if you have an unblocked creature, and most have an additional ability that triggers upon combat damage. Between you know the plane chase decks and drawing drafting a lot of modern horizons, I was lucky enough to have all 18 ninjas ahead of time. Um, you know, just kind of going through a couple of them, um, you know, we have uh, you know, one of one of the classics is um which where is it? Uh Ninja of the Deep Hours, which is normally three in the blue for a two-two ninja, but Ninjutsu is only one in the blue. Um, so whenever you, whenever it deals combat damage, you know you can draw a card. Um, another one is Higure the Still Wind, which is a legendary creature ninja, normally three blue blue, um, but instead you can Ninjutsu it for two blue and blue. Whenever it deals combat damage, I can essentially tutor up a ninja and place it into my hand. And on the plus side, it also lets me return a ninja that uh, makes a ninja I have not be able to be blocked this turn, which helps, especially since a lot of ninjas. Uh, in the deck, you know, again, require some sort of uh, combat damage uh, to trigger their effects. Uh, the ones that don't have uh, an, an ability um, or a ninjutsu ability, a phantom ninja, uh, just pretty much uh, one blue and blue illusion ninja cannot be blocked for a 2-2. Two -two. Um, so this, you know, helps enable other ninjas. And then Throat Seeker is a vampire ninja, two in the black. Uh, for 3-2 unblocked ninjas, I control have lifelink. Um, this doesn't have any form of evasion itself. It doesn't have a way to get it down. However, uh, in a case where I am getting beat down by uh, a lot of other people because I'm, I've painted the target on my back, this may help me live just long enough to be able to survive. Um, the most expensive ninja I have is Silent Blade Oni, um, three blue, blue, black, black, or four blue and black. So no man mana cost reduction, though it's a little bit easier in terms of uh, color requirements. Uh, when it deals damage as a six, five, um, you know, look at the player's hand and I may cast a non-land card from it without playing that card's mana cost, so definitely a way to, you know, still play some of my opponent's best stuff. Um, Ink Eyes, Servant of Oni, for black black uh, for a rat ninja, or three black black for ninjutsu, 5-4. Uh, whenever it deals combat damage to a player, it will put target creature from that player's graveyard onto the battlefield under my control. So because ninjas are in blue and black, obviously... And a lot of very demure blue-black focused stuff. Um, I will say, you know, because... Um because Yuriko, you know, her ability specifically keeps off whenever a ninja deals combat damage, um, the ideal situation would be I kind of go a little bit wide with ninjas where, you know, they can't block everything. And I'm getting multiple, um, you know, triggers of her ability every turn by getting stuff in. Uh, to that end, I have two enchantments that make my non-ninja creatures into ninjas. 
and I have you know twenty four uh, other creatures that are uh, non uh, you know not not um, that are. N- that are not ninjas uh, naturally, um, and so you know these are arcane adaptation, which is two in the blue uh, for an enchantment. Uh, whenever it enters the battlefield, choose a creature type. Uh, creatures I control are the chosen type in addition to their other types, and the same is true for creature spells I control and creature cards I own that aren't on the battlefield. Uh, the second part is particularly relevant for Higure since he lets me tutor up other unblockable creatures uh, who all happen to be ninjas. Um, and then Xenograft is a you know an older version of this effect. Four in the blue. Um, essentially, it just makes creature I control uh, that that creature type of ninja um, in addition to its other types. So definitely a little bit more expensive uh, than arcane adaptation, um, but you know I guess that was the, the way they costed it back then. Um, you know, one other card that works really well with ninjutsu is, is, of course, a ninja-themed card from Modern Horizons is Cunning Evasion. For one in the blue, it's an enchantment that bounces any of my blocked creatures back to my hand. Now, normally, you might think this is somewhat card disadvantage in that, um, you know, I'm basically not taking care of their creature. You know, if, I, if I'm getting blocked, I'm not able to kill their creature. However, ninjas don't really want to do that, right? Ninjas are relatively smaller for the most part, so they're not often going to kill things. Um, and by putting them back in my hand, if I have other unblocked creatures, which I often do, um, I'm able to get them back. Um, the sequencing of this is basically, you know, go to attack, go to attackers, and say I attack with an unblocked creature and a ninja, um, or a creature that can't be blocked in the ninja. They block my ninja, and the ninja goes back to my hand. Um, because the creature, other creature is now unblocked, and that ninja is in my hand, uh, assuming I have the mana for it, I can then cast ninjutsu, so that ninja, which got blocked by their uh, creature, uh, or by their by their creature, essentially uh, is still able to trigger their deals combat damage trigger effect. Um, now, of course, I could get blown out uh, and you know end up with too many cards in hand and having to discard. But that kind of ends up, you know, one of the things with Eurycoist kind of ends up with a an embarrassment of riches, so to speak, where I end up having too many cards in hand quite often. So, of course, you know, like I mentioned, in order to help these ninjas get into play, I need creatures that enable the ninjutsu mechanic. So ninjutsu is a very much an A-B mechanic where you need two parts. Uh, the ninjas are one part, the enablers are the other. Um, there are, have been many forms of evasion in the mirror colors over the years. Uh, flying is perhaps the most common. It's evergreen, um, though it's not necessarily foolproof, right? Because uh, in late game, especially if I'm playing against decks with dragons or demons or angels or, you know, even just creatures with reach, uh, you know, my flying game kind of, uh, you know, evasion becomes kind of not as useful. Um, you know, fear is basically unblockable except for black or artifact creatures. So again, that's going to depend on the meta. If I'm playing against the black deck, fear isn't going to be as useful. Same if it's against an artifact deck. Um, shadow is strictly unblockable, uh, but I'm giving up the ability to block other creatures that don't have shadow. Um, shadow is not super common, so you know this normally isn't a problem. And given the fact that my ga- game plan is very aggressive, I usually don't leave back any blockers if I can help it. Um, you know that drawback of not being able to block with a creature who has shadow isn't usually much of a drawback. Of course, the best form of evasion are cards that literally say they cannot be blocked. So, as I mentioned before, most EDH decks often start out with slower early turns dedicated to ramping out mana rocks and stuff. You know, the classic, you know, turn one play, land, uh, solving into a signet, for example, to ramp out your hand. Um, Yuriko, you want to start out ideally instead. You know, I don't have any artifact ramp in the, de- in the deck. Um, I, I spend my first two turns essentially... Uh, Ideally, getting a turn one evasive creature or one drop, uh, followed by Yuriko ninjutsuing on turn two to get the ball rolling. So my ideal hand usually will include uh, at least one, uh, one un- uh, unblockable one drop, uh, and at least two lands uh, that can produce blue and black uh, separately. Um, that way I can get ninjutsu, uh, ninjutsu Yuriko from the uh, command zone then. So of the 24 unblockable creatures I have, uh, or what I consider my unblockable creatures, uh, 11 of them are 0 or 1 drops. Uh, one, the 1 0 drop is, of course, Ornithopter, um, which means I have uh, 10 uh, uh, 1 drop creatures. Most of them are straight up unblockable. If I'm, you know, again, I'd, I'd rather not be hampered by, you know, later in the game, uh, you know, having to deal with actual other flyers or other reach creatures. Stricter, Strictly unblockable creatures. Um, these are Trident Swordwalker, Slitherblade, Miscloaked Herald, Goodle Lurker, Changeling Outcast, which has the benefit of doubling as a ninja since it has uh, Changeling, and Tormented Soul. Uh, these are all 1 1s for 1. Um, 
again, these are essentially the best turn one play I can make in this deck. Now, there are those that are not strictly unblockable, but they have some other form of upside, which as a one, like, which again, being a one drop mostly unblockable is pretty good. And, you know, having a small form of upside, you know, there, there were other one one for ones that are just, you know, one one for one flying, um, which I didn't include in the deck because, you know, if I could have that or one one for uh, one flying with a minor upside, I would prefer the minor upside. Um, so, you know, Ginger Brute from uh, Throne of Eldraine, it does require an additional mana payment on each turn. It wants to be unblockable, um, which, you know, if your opponent, you know, usually maybe you can get a couple turns and when some people don't have any blockers down, um, you know, having to pump in a mana every turn to make it unblockable you know, this deck is surprisingly mana hungry, um, especially since you're bound, you're constantly ninjutsuing things out and then trying to recast things again. Um, but, uh, you know, Ginger Brute, especially the fact that it is colorless, means that the color requirements are not quite as strict. Um, so that, that's a little bit easier uh, on, on that. Um, and, you know, the small benefit of, you know, if I need to stabilize a little bit longer and, you know, cast it in for three life, um, that can help. Um, Artificer's Assistant uh, and uh, Eye Collector and Fairy Seer um, are you know uh, you know one uh, one mana flyers, um, but they allow for more top deck manipulation. Uh, even if you know it only has flying artificer's assistant. If I cast a historic spell, um, which is basically uh, in this deck, you know I have a couple artifacts and uh, I have a couple legendary creatures. So you know artificer's assistant, I'm kind of keeping an eye on if I actually want to keep it in the deck. If it's going to actually trigger um, you know uh, the scry whenever I cast a histor historic spell often enough but um, being able to scry and manipulate the top deck is you know can be helpful in the deck um i collector you know i basically whenever it deals combat damage uh i get i have to put a card on top from the top of my library into the graveyard in conjunction with scrying um you know this can be helpful um and then fairy seer you know is probably the best one of these uh one drop flyers it's a one one for one um that when it enters the battlefield i can scry too this is particularly helpful with uh, you know, the ninjas, uh, because if Fairy Seer ends up getting uh, bounced back to my hand, I can then put it back on, I can then recast it and then, uh, you know, scry again um, and, you know, keep on looking a little bit further ahead into the future. Uh, Ornithopter, you know, even if it doesn't actually deal any combat damage, um, you know, which actually is relevant if it turns into a uh, ninja from Arcane Adaptation or Xenograft, doesn't actually trigger Yuriko's. Um, uh, you know, ability since it doesn't deal any combat damage. Um, you know, it still is actually useful for um, one particular reason. So, you know, let's say a typical game, I have my god hand, uh, you know, some, you know, let's say Ornithopter is my uh, zero or one drop unblockable creature. I have the two lands and then I have Yuriko. So start with seven in my hand. Uh, in a multiplayer game, you draw one. So I started the game with eight. Um, I play a land drop and a one drop, uh, or, or in this case, Ornithopter, uh, putting me down to six cards in hand. Um, and then on turn two, I draw a card. I'm back up to seven. And I play my la second land, um, blue and black. Uh, so I'm down to, you know, I'm down to six cards in hand. I swing with Ornithopter um, and then I Ninjutsu Yuriko in. So, you know, the un so Ornithopter goes back to my hand. Ninjutsu comes in from the command zone, meaning that uh, I draw, and then I draw a card off of Yuriko's triggered ability once Yuriko deals damage to the opponent. That puts me up to eight cards in hand total at the end of combat. Now, if I instead of an Ornithopter, it had been a one-drop creature, I had already spent all my mana the turn, so by the end of the turn, I will have eight cards in hand, unable to cast anything, therefore I have to discard one and go to the graveyard. Ornithopter, being a zero-drop, lets me get around this by basically allowing me to drop Ornithopter again on turn two after Yuriko does her, da does her damage, and so I have seven cards in hand and don't have to discard any. There aren't that many. There are a couple. There are some degree of graveyard interaction with my deck, but you know, not enough that I am entirely comfortable just throwing cards away. Um, in any case, moving up to the two-drop slot, it's not quite as appealing to be a turn behind and being able to ninjutsu Yuriko. You know, ninjutsuing on turn two is a lot more appealing than ninjutsuing on turn three. You know, the benefit from one to the difference between one and two is a lot bigger than the difference between two and three, which is a lot bigger than the difference from three to four, and so on, right? Um, so, you know, I'm a lot more strict with what makes the cut here into deck into the deck for unblockable creatures. Most are either strictly unblockable, have fear, or have shadow. Um, 
Um, these are ether figment blighted agent, which has the benefit of also uh, doing a little bit of infect in there. Um, Demir infiltrator, fluter step eidolon, ink fathom infiltrator, fathom witch, invisible stalker, luther ill core, and tetsuko umizawa fugitive. Um, these are all my two drops that basically have some have base essentially uh, unconditional, um, almost unconditional. Uh, uh, unblockable unless I'm playing against like a black or artifact creature deck. Um, the last one, Tetsuko Umizawa Fugitive, has a couple nice things. One, it kind of leans into the Kamigawa uh, flavor, you know, since Umizawa definitely have a, had a place in, in Magic history from Kamigawa. Um, but more importantly, creatures I control with power, toughness one or less cannot be blocked. Um, now, Obviously, most of my unblockable creatures already have some sort of built-in unblockability, but this does help, you know, uh, whatever flying unblockable cre creatures can now become unblockable. Um, a couple of ninjas uh, have uh, one toughness or one uh, power as well, uh, which make them unblockable. And then most importantly, Yuriko only has one power. So if I don't boost her up in any way, uh, she is now able to consistently get in for damage, um, which, you know, that kind of makes Tetsuko uh, Umizawa worth it alone just for the synergy with Yuriko. Um, now I have a couple flyers uh, who, you know, again, not the best form of evasion uh, compared to what else is out there, but they have some pretty strong benefits. Night Veil Sprite has recurring top deck manipulation by allowing me to surveil whenever I attack with it. And then Baleful, Baleful Strix replaces itself with a card uh, by drawing whenever it enters the battlefield, which again, when I ninjutsu it in and out, uh, can, you know, accumulate to many cards over the course of a game. Uh, and then in addition, having Death Touch is a good way to deal with big creatures uh, who might be flying, I can still get in unblockable f through that. So it's a kind of a nice trade-off. Either I kill their big thing that would have, you know, um, you know, I, I wanted to get rid of anyway, or, you know, it, they let it pass and I'm able to do two in. Um, I do also have Devourer of Memory from Theros Beyond Death slotted in here, though it's conditional unblockable in that it requires a card to go from my library onto the into the graveyard, so milling myself, and then also requires three mana to actually, you know, uh, trigger force that ability instead of doing it some other way. Um, so honestly, this is likely going to be a place with something I'm talking about uh, later on in the episode. Um, finally, I only have one three-drop unblockable creature, Saddlemate's Infiltrator. It's one blue and a black for a human wizard with fear. Um, again, can only be blocked by artifact creatures and or black creatures. Um, and whenever it deals combat damage to a player, I may draw a card and it's a 1-3. Um, this is just really great. Uh, normally, again, I don't want to put... Two you know, unblockable creatures that are above two. I'm making an exception for Saddamade's Infiltrator because recurring card draw is, you know, that card advantage engine is pretty powerful. So, uh, looking to future upgrades, I think this count of 24 unlockable creatures is really what helps this deck function. Based on the hypergeometric calculator, I am about 90% likely to have at least one of these cards in my opening hand. Uh, if I look at the 11 one drops, uh, one or zero drops technically, I have about a 62% chance of having one in my opening hand. Um, though, again, for a god hand, I would need to figure out what the calculator is to include two untapped lands of blue and black, um, which I'm not going to do for this episode. Um, as far as potential upgrades, you know, when looking at this unblockable package, again, the criteria would be needs to be either a one drop that's either strictly unblockable or conditional unblockable with a huge upside. A two drop would pretty much need to be strictly unblockable with some insane upside. And I'm honestly not going to consider any three drops unblockables. So at the one drop slot, Hypnotic Siren is interesting in that, uh, again, it can be an early flyer, um, but it can also be a late drop uh, control magic uh, with its bestow ability. Um, so that's kind of like nice having that, 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 that uh, different, um, you know, different, different modality depending on at what point I draw it in the game. Uh, Siren Storm Tamer is an on onboard counter spell that could defer removal, though it is only flying and um, you know it, it could easily be baited out to a certain degree. Though I guess it could also play a certain amount of politics with it. Um, Signal Pest is also an interesting one since you know it's colorless, which makes it a little bit easier to cast. Um, and you know if I'm able to get a wide board of unblockable creatures or other ninjas. Um, 
you know, it would, uh, you know, help by doing battle cry and boosting them all up by a little bit of power. That said, any ninjutsu in ninjas that come in after attackers are declared will not get this boost. Um, quickly, Boggart is a one drop with fear. Mothless Changeling does have conditional flying in that I do need to tap an untapped creature, though that just means I have to play another creature, you know, before combat and just tap it down since, uh, you know, I'm probably not going to want to block with these anyway. But the upside is that it also counts as another ninja without any additional any additional effects necessary. And then finally, Wingcrafter uh, is a 1-1 one, one for 1 that has Soul Bond, and whenever it's paired with another creature, it and that other creature, perhaps another ninja, has flying, which again helps the ninjas connect and get their secondary effects off. Uh, in the 2-dop slot, Augury Owl has a nice one-time Scry 3 effect uh, whenever it enters the battlefield. It is only flying, but similar to Fairy Seer, if I'm able to bounce it repeatedly, um, you know that's a nice way to continue to dig deeper and deeper into my deck. Uh, Ghostly Pilfer is a nice addition from M21. It not only allows me to discard the extra cards that would be discarded anyway for value, uh, it allows me to spend extra mana to draw cards at the beginning of my turns, and then it also punishes opponents who are casting their commanders since, you know, it if, if you're casting it from anywhere else, including the command zone aside from the hand, uh, it lets me draw a card. Uh, neither, you know, Trader, uh, Nether, sorry, Nether Trader has haste, and it also has Shadow, which is you know nice. The one downside here uh, is that it's double black, which is a little bit harder to cost uh, to, to cast. Um, but it does come with a form of recursion directly to the battlefield. Uh, you know, if something dies, which very well could happen. So um, yeah, I would say you know this actually this this would be another nice in, uh, including to the deck. So between these two categories, uh, I have my uh, you know 24 unblockable creatures and then 18 uh, ninja cards slash two cards that uh, you know create things, turn things into ninjas, um, and then Yuriko. So that's 43 cards. Um, I currently have 40, 34 lands, uh, which is again two less than my normal. Again, given the majority of the deck that I'm planning on casting, uh, only require you know is a much lower CMC and casting cost. Um, I'm okay with that. Uh, currently, I have 15 each of islands and swamps, since untapped lands are very important. Again, one drop into two drop is super important for this deck. The other four lands uh, are you know uh, either for fixing or utility. Uh, Command tower is for fixing. Rogue's passage is a you know great. Ma late game mana sync to grant unblockable to a ninja that doesn't have it naturally. Uh, Temple of Deceit is a tapped land, but it does give me a scry, so you know that form of top deck manipulation is appreciated. And then finally, Zolfin Void, uh, which does not you know tap for colored mana, but um, you know it does again uh, leave, give me an additional scry. Um, the mana base definitely is a place where you can, you know, spend a lot of money to try to, you know, boost, uh, you know, boost the con consistency of your deck. Um, just some cards and, and land that, that would fit into the deck. Uh, Castle Vantress uh, for recurring scry. Choked Estuary as a power potential untapped dual land if I have a swamp or island in hand. Dark Slick Source is a potential untapped dual land if it gets down early. Dark Water Catacombs is a great way to ensure I have blue and black mana on turn two, regardless of whatever my ter first turn play was, um, which helps with Yuriko. Drowned Caligome, again, is a is a similar situation. It's a good turn to play onward. Um, Halimar Depths uh, is a brainstorm on a stick, though it does enter un enter tapped. Uh, Isolated Watchtower is colorless, but it does have a recurring scry effect if I really need one of those. Morphic Pool, of course, is the Battle Bond land for blue and black, which is you know pretty much a, a functional dual land in ED8s. Uh, Sunken Ruins is another great turn to play that guarantees Yuriko. And then Watery Grave as a sock land is just essentially a way to just uh, have an untapped land for two, two life. So, uh, you know, given the lands, given the unblockable creatures, given the ninjas, what do I have left? So, as I met, so again, the last ability of Yuriko wants high CMC creatures um, to trigger that off. That's the last 23 cards. Um, now these aren't the own. Now you know these aren't the only high CMC cards. My ninjas range from you know one mana all the way up to seven mana, um, with the average CMC being four point one five. Um, so I'll normally you know if I reveal a ninja on average, I'm going to be burning the, the all opponents for four. Um, and the, 
uh, that said, because I am you know leaning in on the creatures uh, to be, and I'm starting to cast them more, um, and it's more important that I have a higher critical mass of low drop creatures. I'm giving up more lands, which makes casting these hard, these high CMC cards, you know, not quite as appealing. I definitely don't want to be, you know. I could I could put a Draco in the deck and reveal for sixteen or whatever, but that's just going to uh, basically um, you know that's basically going to be completely uncastable in this deck and be a dead card in hand, um, especially if I don't happen to flip it off of Eureka's ability. So um, what do I do if I happen to draw one of these high CMC cards in my hand without getting it off of Eureka's ability since I'm drawing a lot of cards at some point? You know I don't have any infinite mana generators in the deck. And so, what? What? How? How do I prevent these cards from being dead card dead draws? Um, there are two ways to do this. One is to lean into split cards, and the other are alternate casting costs. So, first, split cards. As a weird, weird quirk of magic rules, split cards, which are cards that have two modes on the front and two casting costs for each side, they have a converted mana cost that is considered the sum of the two casting costs. So, for example, Far and Away is a split card that I could either cast Far for two mana to bounce a creature, or Away for three mana to make an opponent sacrifice a creature. Both are fairly low-cost spells. I could definitely fit them in at early on in the game as necessary, but this will count for a 5 CMC card based off of Yuriko's second ability, and this is the cheapest one of the split cards I have. Um, so not only does this give me a decent, you know, one was it one eighth of my opponent's life total if I this is what I flip off the top, but it also gives me the flexibility to cast the card early on, and it also gives me more card effects per card. So I essentially I'm having additional spells, uh, you know, more than a hundred spells or cards, I guess, card effects uh, in in by having it uh, two two effects on one card. Um, that's kind of like card economy here, right? Um, some other cards I have, you know, all the other split cards I have, I have Consign to Oblivion. Um, so one side Consign is two mana to bounce a creature. And then Oblivion, so in Amonkhet, they had the Aftermath cards, which are split cards, where the second half could only be cast from the graveyard. Um, so Oblivion is five mana to uh, make an opponent discard two, which means the total CMC is seven. Uh, Discovery and Dispersal, two mana to surveil and draw a card, or five mana to make an opponent bounce and discard, again, CMC of seven. Never to Return is three to destroy a creature or four to exile a creature and make a zombie token. Um, this is a aftermath card um, for seven CMC. Uh, Spite and Malice is four to counter a creature or four to doomblade a creature, uh, eight total CMC. Connive and Concoct, four mana to steal a small creature or five to surveil and reanimate a creature, uh, five, nine total CMC. Commit to Memory, uh, four to bounce a card to the top of the library or six mana, mana from the graveyard uh, to after method um, to wheel essentially make me and my opponents wheel uh, for 10 mana uh, CMC sorry and then racks to riches is four mana to board wipe uh, with negative negative two on everything or seven to aftermath a creature from uh, to cast it from the graveyard with aftermath uh, to steal a creature from each opponent total CMC of 11 this is one fourth of all my opponent's life total um, and in fact I believe this is one of the most highest CMC card highest CMC cards in the deck. So in total, I have uh, eight cards, um, but with 16 effects. The average cost of each individual effect is four, meaning that's what I'm probably gonna be casting these cards for at any one time. And the eight cards, however, have an average CMC of eight. So I'm essentially getting a four mana bonus uh, from the effects versus what I'm, uh, essentially either, depending on your perspective, either a four mana mana bonus on Yuriko's ability by I'm gonna cast it for four, but I'm going to, you know, get eight, eight, uh, four additional damage out of it um, per opponent, or I'm getting a four mana discount if in actually being able to cast the cards. Um, the aftermath cards in particular work really well with the problem I described earlier of needing to discard to, discard the hand size uh, when I have too many you know, in, at the end of the turn because I bounce the creature back and I don't have extra mana to cast them. So if I, you know, if I reveal an aftermath, so let's say you know that, that scenario where I swung with an unblockable creature on turn two, Ninjutsu then uh, Yuriko, and then Yuriko deals damage. If the next card on top of my deck uh, is an aftermath card, um, you know, I burn the opponent for an average of eight mana, potentially up to eleven. And then, since I'm unlikely going to be able to cast, you know, that card soon, uh, I end up tossing it into the graveyard. But I'm still able to access at least one half of the card's effects later on in the game uh, because it's already in the graveyard. 
Now, aside from the split cards, cost reductions or alternate casting costs are another great way to be able to use cards that have a high CMC value on the face that I want for Yuriko that my mana base doesn't necessarily is not able to support. Uh, Mold Drifter and Shriekma are two evoke cards that cost five mana each, but if I evoke them for their three or two for either three or two mana, I can either draw two cards or destroy a creature respectively without getting the body uh, in place. On the other hand, if I do am able to spend five mana for this, um, I'm able to get you know those effects still and still have an evasive body to boot, which again is especially useful in this deck. Um, and you know, even better if I'm able to bounce them back to hand and then replay them again, I'm able to get that effect since Evoke is essentially a, a, their abilities or enter the battlefield effects. Um, Ether Snipe is like this as well. It's a six mana cost up front, um, but can be cost for three for its effect, Evoke effect. Uh, one ability that premiered in the commander effect in the commander deck is the undaunted mechanic. Uh, it reduces the cost of a card by one for each opponent I have. So early on in the game, it's you know if I'm playing against three opponents, it costs three less um, than two than one. So early on, you know, Curtain's Call uh, has a converted mana cost of six mana to destroy two creatures. Uh, I can often early on cast this for only three mana if I have three opponents, meaning you know I'm getting a three mana bonus or discount depending on your perspective. Uh, into the story is an instant from Thorn to Eldraine that costs seven up front, but you know, it reduces by three down to only four mana uh, to draw four cards, which is huge, um, you know, provided an opponent has seven cards in their graveyard, which isn't too hard, especially if you're playing against someone who has, you know, reanimating graveyard shenanigans. Uh, Decree of Pain costs eight mana on its front to wipe all creatures and then draw a bunch of cards, um, which is very powerful, but you can also cycle it, uh, which is, an, an, you know, not strictly an, an alternate casting cost, but another way to use the card for only five mana. Uh, to give a mini wipe of minus two, minus two to all creatures and draw a single card. Now, this is a bit of a non-bow with many of my creatures since they're relatively small. So I'm considering swapping this one out for other stuff uh, I'm going to talk about later. Uh, finally, we have the Delve mechanic. This premiered, uh, I believe, in Time Spiral block and then came to prominence in the Tarkir block. This super broken mechanic lets me exile cards from the graveyard to pay for high casting costs of these cards. Um, one card for one generic mana. So, um, Again, this works well with the situation that I described where I often have too many cards in hand early on and need to discard them down to hand size. Um, anyway, so, you know, Murderous Cut costs five to destroy a creature. Death Rattle, six to do the same. Dig Through Time costs eight to pick the two best cards from the top of my library. Treasure Cruise costs eight to draw three. And then Temporal Trespass, again, is one of the other highest CMC card in my deck, uh, 11 to take an extra turn. Now, the average CMC among Delve cards is seven, meaning if I flip a Delve card, it's probably going to be picking them for seven, um, which is pretty big. But again, I cannot stress enough how being able to, you know, these could cost way less um, by having enough cards in the graveyard to, to delve away. Uh, Treasure Cruise famously only can cost one blue mana to draw three, which is basically an ancestral recall. Now, the one downside here is that delve cards, you know, I can only play so many of them because the more I have in the deck, I am going to be going through whatever's in my graveyard Um to be able to cast them, uh, which means that, you know, once I go through, you know, my entire graveyard for one or two Delve cards, the other ones will have to be paid full with their full cost up front, which may not be possible. So, you know, potentially just limiting the what you have of your Delve cards to only the really best ones might be the way to go. Um, now, one final way to cheat mana costs is a super spicy tech, which only has 17% of deck, Eurico decks according to EDH rec. Uh, Bolus' Citadel is a legendary artifact from War of the Spark that costs 6 mana total. Uh, one, the effect is, the first effect, it lets me know what's on top of my library. I can look at it whenever I want. Um, the second ability is that I can pay life equal to the CMC of the top card in order to cast it without paying its mana cost. Now, I do get stuck if I have a land on top that I, you know, if I already played my land for the turn, I'm not able to, you know, play another land off the top of my library. Um, and then, you know, I can use this, uh, you know, for, I can use this in a couple ways. I can either use this to pay powerful spells ahead of curve, right? Like, let's say I really want to do Treasure Cruise, you know, on turn six uh, when it comes out, and I can pay eight mana to be able to, you know, cast Treasure Cruise. Uh, One-fifth of my life to draw three cards, power at any cost, right? Um, 
on on the other hand, I could use it to essentially filter through you know the low drop you know uh, you know get get a really cheap board of evasive creatures out. You know, paying one life here, two life here, one life here, two life here. Again, really great with that. Um, and then I send, and then I see, oh, I have you know a temporal trespass on top of my library now. Okay, let me swing with my unblockable creatures, and then you know Eurocos on the field. So then I know at the very least I'm going to get temporal trespass at least that one uh, off the top of my library and burn my opponents for 11. Um, you know, and finally, you know, if I'm able to get, you know, a bunch of the low CMC creatures onto the battlefield, you know, pay, you know, between, you know, 10 and 20 life to be able to get 10 of those creatures onto the battlefield, and then, you know, tap Bolus of Citadel, I can burn everyone for 10, which, you know, a lot of the times I've been in cases where I have my opponents at less than 10 life, I just couldn't close the game out and get one more attack in, Bolus of Citadel could potentially help me get, you know, across the finish line in that way. Okay. So, of course, this isn't the only way to build, you know, big spells I want to hit off of Yuriko. There are other categories of mechanics in mine, as well as some other spicy tech. Uh, so, Fierce Guardianship and Deadly Relic are two cards from C20 that are part of a cycle of cards that are free to cast if you control your commander. Uh, in Fierce Guardian's case, it counters a non-creature spell, and Deadly Relic exiles a creature. Now, these cost three and four respectively, so they aren't the biggest targets for Yuriko, uh, but it's still nice to be able to cast them for free. Uh, what isn't free is that they have a very high, uh, you know, um, you know, dollar price. Uh, so if you didn't get them in the pre-contacts, uh, it's going to be a little bit expensive to, you know, include these in your deck. That said, I do still have them in my uh, C20 decks, which I haven't fully taken apart yet and, and slotted in here. So, um, you know, these might be making the way in there shortly, uh, just to have a little bit more interaction. Uh, you could similarly go with you know other classic free counter spells. Uh, Force of Will is five mana. Force of Negation is three mana. Misdirection is five mana. Commandeer is seven mana. This continuity from M twenty one isn't quite a free counter spell, but if I can get it for two on for you know counter something on my turn for two uh, instead of for six on their turn, uh, it is pretty good. So um, you know that's a that's a pretty nice discount. Uh, with that regard, again, these are all pretty expensive. I'm probably not going to include any, if many, if any of these particularly into my deck. Uh, now, you know, aside from, you know, kind of similar type of cards, like the free mana spells where if you exile a blue card from your hand, it's free. Uh, for mechanics, you know, there are, we, we can look at other cards that have similar mechanics to what we have in the deck. Uh, Dead Drop is Delve for 10 mana total. Um, and it's a pretty, which is a pretty big hit off of Yuriko, though, you know, the, the ultimate effect being only making opponents sacrifice two creatures, a little bit low impact. Uh, especially if it's competing against other Delve cards for the graveyard resources. Uh, Coastal Breach is a board wipe for seven, uh, with Undaunted, so it could be as little as four. Um, so this kind of goes in the same line as uh, um, as Curtain's Call. Um, I The reason I don't think I've put this in my deck is I kind of wanted to save it for a more flavorful deck uh, for my Sea Monsters deck, since Coastal Breach kind of fits along with that. Um, that said, you know, there are other mechanics aside from Delve and, um, and Undaunted that kind of fit into the alternate converted, uh, alternate casting cost. Uh, first up, we have Suspend. Uh, this is a mechanic where the cards often have high total CMC cost. Um, but what you do instead of paying that high CMC cost up front, you pay a low CMC cost early on and then you put suspend counters on them uh, and then you know you take one off every upkeep and finally when there are no suspend counters left you can cast it for free from exile um, so essentially you're trading mana for time um, which you know in my case you know I may or may not care about actually having the effect if I have a couple spare mana maybe I'll put it in there um, but I'm really care about you know having these be in the deck in order to you know trigger uh, Yuriko uh, second ability I'm not going to go through all of them since this podcast is getting a little bit long but some highlights. Uh, Deep Sea Kraken is a 6-6 unblockable Kraken for a 10 mana upfront cost, or I can pay only 3 mana and wait 9 turns, though that ter that also will that clock will speed up uh, if it ends if my opponents are casting spells. Um, there are a couple of other creatures, you know, Errant Ephraimon is a 4-4 flyer for 7 mana or for 4 mana over 2 turns. Infiltrator Ilkor, 3-1 Shadow for 5 mana or 2 mana over 2 turns. Um... You know, uh, let's see, um, you know, uh, Viscerate Deepwalker is five mana for a two, three. Um, that could be uh, one mana over four turns. Um, 
let's see. Uh, Curse of the Cabal is really interesting. That one's 10 mana. It suspends for four, which is a little bit of a higher suspend cost and only two turns. But what it does is it forces a it can a, it can force a player to sack all of their permanents when it resolves. But while it's suspended, opponents can kind of delay that effect from happening. You know, maybe do a little bit of politicking with them uh, if they sack one thing on their upkeep instead. Um, you know, so there's just like a lot of you know utility effects and other evasive creatures that you could sneak in here to kind of up the evasive creature count. Though you know it may not pay off until multiple uh, turns down the line. Uh, so who knows if you'll actually live that long. Uh, the average CMC of all of the uh, suspend cards I could find would be relevant is about 6.5. However, the average suspend cost you pay is only two mana. Um, the, again, you have to wait several turns. So that's like about a four mana discount, similar to what you get uh, with the uh, the split cards. And argue, another arguably more fun mechanic uh, for this uh, are the traps from Zendikar. So these are cards that have an effect with a alternate casting cost if your opponent meets some condition that they triggered your trap card. Uh, Archive Trap, for example, is 5 mana to mill your opponent for 13, or it costs 0 if they search the library this turn, something that happens all the time in EDH's. Um, you know, uh, Mind Break Trap is four. Ma is another free counter spell. Um, it's four mana normally. And exile any number of spells in their stack. But if they cast three or more spells in a single turn, which again often happens in EDH, especially with a combo player, um, you know, it only costs zero. So you know that's a good way to kind of gotcha uh, if they if they start to go off. Um, you know, uh, Ravenous Trap costs four normally to exile all cards from a player's graveyard, which is good if they have graveyard shenanigans, but it only costs zero if they have th put put three cards into the graveyard. Now, this is a nice wombo combo if you use Archive Trap to mill your opponent for 13, and then they empty the graveyard uh, using Ravenous Trap. So both of them are free as long as they've, you know, suffered uh, in that particular turn. Now, of course, traps have a lower CMC than both Delve cards and the split CMC cards. The CMC comes out to about 5 total. However, they have a similar mana discount of about 4.5. Um, so, you know, you're not going to get as much damage off of Yuriko, but you also, I think, are going to be a little bit more likely uh, to be able to cast these cards uh, in an actual game. Plus, you know, you just have the story equity of being able to say, you've activated my trap card, uh, which is always a fun time. Uh, so, you know, it also doesn't have the same problem with Delve where you're cannibalizing the same resources and also doesn't have the problem of Suspend uh, where you may not live long enough to actually see the effects of the cards that as you cast them. Plus, Ninjas and Traps, they just seem right to go together, right? So, uh, finally, you know, there's a couple of spicy tech cards I haven't included in my deck yet that I'm looking to. Uh, Smoke Shroud is an enchantment aura that grants a stat boost in flying. It recurs to the battlefield whenever a ninja enters the battlefield. So, you know, it's useful to granting evasion to ninjas even after they enter the battlefield. Um, and you can use it multiple times if your ninjas get killed. Uh, Baron uh, Talarian Archmage from M21 costs 3 mana for a 2-2 wizard that lets you bounce something whenever it enters the battlefield. The real power in this deck, though, comes from letting you draw a card every time a permanent you control is returned to your, to your hand, or at least once per turn if it's returned to your hand. Uh, ninjas and Ninjutsu are constantly returning things to your hand, um, though that said, it might be a little bit win more at that point since I don't think card draw is strictly a problem with this deck. Uh, similarly, Re Reconnaissance Mission from Ikoria lets you draw cards whenever your unblockable creatures connect. Though again, win more because uh, I think you're drawing enough cards. And then finally, a couple of legendary creatures I wanted to mention. Uh, Railed and Nightclad was for a long time the de facto ninja commander. Uh, granted, your creatures intimidate to make them basically unblockable. Um, and then it also pinged for one whenever a creature left the battlefield, you know, such as when creatures ninjutsu. Um, so flavorfully and mechanically wise, I think Yuriko is a better fit. Um, and with the concentration of unblockable creatures I have, I think the uh, additional ability to uh, um, to grant your creatures pseudo unblockable isn't strictly necessary, though it does help the ninjas to a certain degree. Uh, she came in the Plains Chase Jack where, where, where I got most of my ninjas. Um, but she could be a poten a potentially a fun inclusion, you know, if you wanted to maybe bring the power down a little bit lower. Uh, she costs six mana. So another good hit off of Yuriko as well. Uh, finally, a nun's, the last uh, ninja-esque legendary creature is Etrada the Silencer uh, from, I believe, Guilds of Ravnica. She's a bit more expensive uh, at four mana uh, in order to cast her 
her, but she's a 3-5 unblockable with an alternate player kill ability where you know, whenever she deals combat damage to a player, you can exile one of their creatures with a hit counter on it and then shuffle her into the library. Uh, if you're able to presumably cast her three times and have her connect with the same player three times, uh, then you know that, that player is destroyed. Now, that will take a very long time in an EDH deck, but there is a cool trick you can do with ninjas to, to make full use of her. Uh, what you do um, is that after she deals damage, her triggered ability goes on the stack. And then you use, because she's technically still considered attacking, since the attacking status doesn't go away until the end of combat, uh, you can technically still ninjutsu her uh, and bring her back to your hand on another ninja of the battlefield. Now, the ninja won't be able to deal damage and get whatever its effect is, but you're able to bring a trotter back to your hand. The trigger then, her trigger will then resolve, still exiling a creature the opponent's hit, um, you know, uh, goes to exile. However, you're not going to be able to shuffle her into the library since she's no longer on the battlefield. Um, however, since she's in your hand, you then are able to recast her again, uh, ideally, and then that would basically uh, let you, you know, avoid the whole trying to find her from your library again in order to, um, in order to, uh, to, get, to get her three times to hit the same opponent. Um, now, the main reason I haven't included her yet is because I'm hoping to build uh, a deck for each Ravnica guild using the legendary cards from each, from each of the blocks of Ravnica and see what fit in here. That said, I do have multiple copies, I believe, in my binder, so I may just slip her in there anyway. I just normally don't like including the same card in multiple decks if I can help it. Um, but if you like it, I think she's definitely worth it. Uh, in any case, you know, we're going, going on 15 minutes now, and that is my Yuriko tribal deck. Again, the link is in the show notes. Total cost comes out to about $130. Uh, the most expensive piece be, pieces being Sakasima Student at $34, Servant of Oni at $11, Higura of the Sound Still Wind, and Throat Seeker at $7, and then Yuriko herself at being just over $5. Uh, you know, again, I have a very simple mana base, mostly basic lands. Um, you could definitely, uh, you know, bling out your mana base and, and bring that cost up for more consistency. Um, though I don't think, again, it's strictly necessary. Um, and then depending on what you use, uh, the expensive spells could cost a lot less, could cost a lot more, um, especially, you know, if you're going for, say, the Force of Wills and so on. Um, now, let me know what you think of my Yoko deck. You know, I'll, uh, you know, uh, in, in the deck in the deck list I'm including, you know, I'll include the list of cards I'm considering uh, since I haven't updated this deck yet. Um, I just really enjoy this deck. It, again, it kind of scratches that feel of a modern burn deck where I'm like kind of on the edge of my seat. Am I going to be able to pull this off? Uh, you know, and kind of being the arch enemy early on to a certain degree, um, you know. Uh, you know, you could play it a lot more safe again with more top deck manipulation, a little bit more control and interaction. Um, but my ninja way is just kind of go all in, uh, guns blazing and try to be super fast. Um, so yeah. Uh, in any case, this casting of pod is slowing comers to resolution. Let me know what you think about my Eurocode deck and how you'd build it differently uh, on Twitter at EtherVortexPod or via email at IntoTheEtherVortex at gmail.com. Uh, you can find Into the Ether Vortex on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, or you can leave a review on any of the podcast stores or on Podchaser.com. Links in the show notes. Uh, you can also reach out with ideas or feedback. Um, you know, again at the email above into the Ether Vortex. Uh, my architect with all my deck lists is linked at the same at the username Ninja Boy Boy with an I. Um, I'll again link that in the in the show notes. Um, I also stream Magic Arena every Friday night at Ninja Boy three 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 on Twitch. Um, I think tonight I'll probably be trying to get the last of the Jumpstart decks uh, that I haven't been or I haven't been able to get the basic lands for. Um, but yeah, the intro and outro music is provided by Kevin MacLeod. You can find his stuff at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing and production provided by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, may your lands be plentiful, but not too plentiful. Uh -huh.